we are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. So yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. That people don't feel that they can do very much. You know what this is? This is a very Hamiltonian system. Alexander Hamilton being the guy here in a very un-Jeffersonian. In the case of the Republicans, it's dramatically the opposite. Uh, But even in the case of the Democrats. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans themselves. America's fascists are those people who think that Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. What we're seeing is a financial sector that's uh, gotten out of hand. The shooting, the violence, that is not the drug problem. That is, in fact, the drug policy problem. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. Yeah, the dignity of man. What's happened to the dignity within the Democratic race for president? It seems that there is a war being made from the top down on Bernie Sanders. No, it's not from the Republican Party plutocrats he intends to make pay their fair share of taxes it's from the democratic party establishment itself and i got uh, something on facebook just this morning from a friend emily stone jacobs who said and this is being recorded right before the uh, new hampshire presidential primary she said time can't go by fast enough when you're being attacked and threatened by fellow democrats and democratic leaders for not supporting hillary clinton Why is it okay for Democratic leaders to openly endorse Hillary, but if you don't agree, you become the enemy? It isn't fair. Is it really worth tearing the party apart? I know Bernie is worth this fight, and I will not give up. There is this war going on. Uh, One former chair of the New Hampshire Democratic Party, not the current chair, I'll give him credit, a Democratic National Committee person, actually suggested recently that uh, Democrats supporting Bernie Sanders were like animals who had, I'm not kidding, like animals who had defecated on the rugs and curtains of their house, and that we should remember that we are, quote, guests in their house. This is from the Democratic leadership. Like their candidate, they appear unabashed about saying, this is ours, you can't have it. But, of course, that is well outside the actual great democratic tradition. It seems like virtually all of those in the party elite, at least in Washington, are determined, excuse me, to have a uh, coronation instead of a gasp, genuinely democratic process for choosing our presidential nominee. I have seen it firsthand, and frankly, I am disgusted with this war on our leading candidate. Before hosting this show, I served as Democratic state senator for seven elected terms. And to many of my Democratic colleagues here in New Hampshire, Bernie Sanders represents the best long-term traditions and principles of our Democratic Party. It is therefore really shocking to hear what is coming down from some in what is now the party establishment. Our guest today, uh, Matt Karp, writes, quote, No presidential candidate in modern history has performed as well as Bernie Sanders and received so little support from the Democratic Party leadership. 
it is troubling for democracy itself, not just the future of the Democratic Party. Our guest today is Matt Karp, Assistant Professor of History at Princeton University. Matt, thanks for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. I'm happy to be here, Bert. Thank you for having me. Well, Matt Karp is Assistant Professor of History at Princeton University, a school I could never even think to apply to, and a contributing editor at Jacobin Magazine. His first book, This Vast Southern Empire, Slaveholders at the Helm of U.S. Foreign Policy, is due to come out uh, at, with Harvard University Press next fall. Before we get to our guest, one more quote, this one from George Washington, what he, what the concern he had to say about his concern about political parties, and it's very apropos. He said, Political parties may now and then answer popular ends. However, they are likely in the course of time and things to become potent engines by which cunning, ambitious, and unprincipled men, of course it was back in the 18th century, will be enabled to subvert the power of the people and to usurp for themselves the reins of government, destroying afterwards the very engines which have lifted them to unjust dominion. Again, that's George Washington. Again, Matt Carp, you teach American history and have that unique perspective on current happenings. You have that historic context, which is a good one. You start off your article in Jacobin noting two stark facts about the 2016 primary. What are those two stark facts? Well, um, thanks, Bert. And, and as you can see, I'm a little bit in some ways uh, out of my area of expertise in terms of uh, night from moving from the 19th century to today. But this race has really galvanized uh, my attention on on what's happening to our democracy. I think the, the, the two stark facts that, that I think if you sort of zoom out and look at the 2015-2016 race for, for the Democratic nomination, at the beginning, um, you had an overwhelming favorite, Hillary Clinton, and you had uh, a series of small-time Democratic contenders who had virtually no chance at the nomination, according to uh, almost every uh, mainstream media outlet. Bernie Sanders was polling in Iowa at about 7% compared to Hillary Clinton's 68%. Um, and even in New Hampshire, where he was well-known, he was behind by about 40 points when the, when the race began. And it seemed that maybe, at most, a sort of devoted core of um, very far left-leaning Democrats might support Sanders just kind of the way that Dennis Kucinich got a few percentage points in an right, election. Right. Um, but uh, the first stark fact is that Bernie has totally overwhelmed these expectations. And, you know, you, won't, you wouldn't know it from the media spin after the Iowa race where so many pundits were saying, well, actually, Bernie needed to win. And, you know, the tie is a win for Hillary, which I don't, <laughs> I, I still have a hard time understanding that logic when you have such an overwhelming favorite um, with the entire party behind her uh, losing. But b the, the, the first stark fact is that Bernie has galvanized the coalition that looks very different from um, the coalitions of voters uh, put together by challenger under dog Democratic candidates in years past. He does have young voters, of yes. course, which is, uh, you know, a huge element of, of the sort of the Obama coalition. And, uh, you know, earlier underdogs often uh, won the support of young voters. But Bernie's voters, unlike Obama's, um, he's winning lower income voters, too. And often in Iowa and in the New Hampshire polls, it's, it's hard to suss out the difference between sort of class and, and, in, and income, uh, sorry, income and age. Um, it may be that, you know, some of his voters are younger people uh, who just aren't making much money yet. But uh, the bottom line is Barack Obama w did really well with voters making over $100,000 or more, mm -hmm. and Bernie has not. His support has come largely from 
uh, a younger voter pool that is that is not doing as well economically, uh, is less comfortable. And um, and this is really surprising that he's managed to do so well on the basis of this coalition, which has not been favorable to underdog candidates in times past. So that's fact number one. Yeah. Uh, fact number two is the despite Bernie's incredible success going from seven percent to fifty percent, galvanizing the, this enormous youth vote, um, uh, winning the support of a lot of people who had been uh, alienated from politics, obviously, and disaffected, um, you know, polling in the mid-30s over almost 40% in, some, in many national polls. He's attracted almost no support from the National Democratic Party. Um, again, very unlike any other, quote-unquote, liberal underdog from previous years, Bill Bradley, Howard Dean, Barack Obama, they were all polling worse, actually, than Bernie Sanders um, in terms of the share of the overall Democratic vote at this point uh, in, in their races in 2000 and 2004 and 2008. And yet they had each of them, Bradley, Dean, Obama, had far more congressional, senatorial, uh, gubernatorial endorsements. Sanders... Um, just two congressmen in Washington are supporting, uh, officially on the record, supporting Bernie. Um, they've completely frozen him out. And it really is unprecedented given, you know, how much voter support he has, how much, you know, his donor base, which is historic, um, 1.3 million donations, um, far surpassing Obama's donor base. He's galvanized so much energy and from, the, from below and yet has received so little support from above. It is it is pretty uh, remarkable. I mean, it, it's a democratic process, and I, you know, I have been involved in democratic primaries for more years than I'd like to say. It's always a spirited contest every time, and we always come together to support our nominee. In prior years, there have been favorites and upstarts. Uh, this year, it seems to be different. The vitriol from many Hillary supporters seems to have one consistent message: How dare anyone else challenge Hillary? It is her turn. Just get out of the way. You, you write, Matt Carp, that, that you, you use the term, it's a fierce determination of the Democratic Party elite to nominate Hillary Clinton. How fierce is it? And how, how unusual is that fierceness? It seems very unusual to me. Well, I want to be, I want to be, I want to be a little bit cautious, and I don't want to be too polemical, just in the interest of fairness. I mean, Hillary Clinton is a very well-known, very Hillary. popular politician with the Democratic rank and file, and there's no question that as the race shaped up, it wasn't just elites who support Hillary Clinton, and it's still not just elites. Right. Um, True. There are plenty of Democrats who, you know, think Hillary would be a great president and are eager to support her, and there are, you know, some arguments in her favor, but. Um, but if you looked at the, the one of the I cited a Gallup poll I think or maybe it was a Pew poll in uh, in in the piece if you looked at how Democrats were viewed the race before it began would they prefer one strong candidate um, to sort of take command of the race and you know concentrate all of our force behind this strong candidate you know it, they didn't they didn't poll uh, would you like to coronate Hillary Clinton because of course nobody would have said that you know right. everyone wants in theory uh, no one wants a coronation but the choice was one strong candidate to lead the race or a competitive um, a competitive primary and well over 54 percent said uh, supported a competitive primary and only 40 percent uh, supported a kind of of Hillary um, clear favorite race. So the enthusiasm for Hillary, it wasn't entirely from above, but the, the disproportion between which the people from above have viewed it and the people from below um, is, is really, really striking and I think unprecedented. Um, and I, th I mean, there are a couple of reasons for that, but um, I mean, I'm sure you, uh, in your experience uh, in, in the Democratic Party, know probably a little bit more in some ways about how um, these party leaders make decisions. Well, it, it, I, I've never seen uh, the party leaders so 
decided. So, you know, this is it. She's our candidate. Everybody else get out of the way. I've never seen anything like that before. Yeah. I, I, I just yeah. I just haven't done it. And looking, I, of course, love history myself. I, looking at some history of the Democratic Party in the United States, I don't think there'd be any disagreement that two of the greatest Democratic presidents of the 20th century were Franklin Roosevelt and Lyndon Johnson, minus Vietnam, of course. As a professor of history, between those two candidates, between the two candidates today, do you think there's one carrying on these democratic traditions and principles more closely than the other between Hillary and Bernie? Well, to me, there's no question it's um, it, it's Bernie Sanders. It, it connects much more directly in terms on the level of policy and on the level of worldview and ideology that uh, with the sort of New Deal era Democrats than 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 Hillary Clinton. And he's quite explicit about that. You know, his uh, you know I know people um, sort of on the socialist left in some ways have been very disappointed with his definition of democratic socialism, which sounds almost identical to Franklin Roosevelt um, uh, economic uh, Franklin Roosevelt New Dealism. Yeah. Um, and he's very clear about it, you know his sort of social democratic reforms or liberal reforms, progressive reforms are inspired by uh, the model of um, uh, you know I think I think Bernie I think it's fair to say that with a program like single payer health care or free public college Bernie would want to extend the achievements of somebody like Roosevelt or Johnson but he's clearly operating in that tradition whereas I think Hillary Clinton comes out of um, comes out of a different tradition uh, within the Democratic Party the sort of new Democrats who are emerged um, after, uh, in you know, in some ways, Jimmy Carter, was, I think you could make a fair case, was the first kind of um, centrist, market-oriented Democrat who did a lot of deregulating and um, mm-hmm. pivoted the party toward the center in his in his uh, in his presidency, but especially this, tra- I think Clinton comes out of the tradition that emerged in the 1980s um, and in the early 1990s with the Democratic Leadership Council right. and the kind of very um, very you know I mean this was a movement that was very ideologically candid about its goals to say okay the old New Deal Democrat model has failed we've lost elections to Reagan and we've lost sight of what actually works so both in practical electoral and in sort of ideological terms we want to embrace some of um, you know portions of, um, of 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 the sort of Republican agenda yeah. and use it um, for our own purposes so you know policies like welfare reform and um, and uh, even even Hillary's health care plan which is one of the more liberal things that uh, the Clinton administration attempted to do um, was a far cry from um, it was still uh, dependent on making all sorts of deals with the insurance industry, preserving private medicine, um, preserving for-profit medicine, rather, mm-hmm. um, as the basis of the system. Um, it was it was very much um, a sort of market-oriented reform rather than a kind of um, great society uh, uh, New Deal um, uh, style, uh, extending the sort of the, the, the um, using the power of sort of public investment to protect the most vulnerable Americans. Yeah, and that really changed with the Democratic Leadership Council, as you said, and and that uh, was, you know, with came in with the Clintons and and really changed the party at least temporarily, you know, to go. I mean, you always need a lot of money to run for president, no question about that. And they figured, well, go to few people with a lot of money, it'll make it easier, and then you know, just tilt towards the the corporate interests and the bank interests and the insurance company interests and the pharmaceutical, and that's very mm-hmm. different, as far as I can tell, from the democratic tradition and we most democrats seem to have 
a fairly common vision of a party. I mean, there's, there's some variations for sure, but you, you mentioned something in your article in Jacobin, uh, something I had never heard of, Michael Tomaski's vision of the Democratic Party. What, what, what is that? I don't know about that. Well, I mean, Michael Tomaski is a—he's a sort of a well-known liberal pundit, and you know, he supports Hillary Clinton. And his his argument was essentially that um, because so few Democrats have supported Sanders, um, because you know, especially national Democrat elites, but he, you know, he also pointed to state legislators, uh, like you know, as as you were, uh, and how they also overwhelmingly favor Clinton. Um, his argument was essentially, this is the party as it is currently constituted, and it uh, it has decided to support Hillary, and therefore Bernie is, in, in a sense, ineligible to uh, to take the helm of this party because he doesn't have much support, if any, from um, elect, elected officials. And first of all, that's not quite true. I mean, he does have endorsements from, you know, over 100 state legislators, so it's not, that's not Make it seem like he has nothing right. uh, on on the state level, uh, especially strong. I think I think he has several endorsements in New Hampshire, more than a few. Oh yeah, um, um, I was the first. But still, <laughs> the Tomaski idea was, you know, this is the party as it is. The party exists essentially in um, uh, the, the the sort of the, the true party resides in the minds and the ideas and the plans of its elected officials rather than its voters. That was the presupposition, I think, behind his piece, although I doubt he would put it in those terms. And uh, essentially that voters who might prefer a different candidate with a different set of policies, um, in, in effect, weren't, you know, weren't really eligible to, uh, to, 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 to pursue their, uh, their own desires and their plans uh, for the party. So making the Democratic Party less Democratic with a small d. Interesting right. idea. Right. No, I mean, I think that's a little bit what it amounts to. Fantastic. Interesting. Bizarre. Historic. Our guest today is Matt Karp, assistant professor of history at Princeton University. We're talking about the odd war from the party elite, the national party elite, against one of its top candidates, Bernie Sanders. Now, to be fair, Bernie Sanders was elected mayor, member of Congress, and U.S. senator, not as a Democrat. He was an independent. Of course, he's always caucus with the Democrats in Washington. How much might this aspect, that he has a history of being an independent, how might this explain the viciousness of the attacks from the top down? Well, I think that's a big part of it, and I probably should have actually, to be honest, I should have uh, gestured to that a little bit more in the article. Um, I think he, uh, I think you know, if you look at if you look at Bernie's long career, um, you know, beginning with his, um, begin, well, beginning before he was elected uh, in Burlington when he ran in the I think the Liberty Union Party in in Vermont in the '70s as a you know a kind of fringe, somewhat fringe left wing party candidate and won you know at most six or seven percent of the vote. His whole career has been has electorally has operated outside of the Democratic Party, and certainly um, he's had a lot of opposition from the Democratic Party in in Vermont. I mean, they you know Howard Dean was a major rival of his across the 90s. He had to overcome Democratic uh, opposition in Burlington to get elected, and every year the Democrats you know uh, uh, for for many years anyway the Democrats ran candidates against him even after though he was an incumbent who was a reliable progressive vote who was caucusing with the Democrats. He was very favorable, but the Dem- Democratic Party in Vermont continued to um, oppose him and run a sort of more, um, uh, usually a more sort of centrist candidate uh, to, to try to pick him off. Uh, even though in, in virtually in virtually every one of those elections, the result of that candidacy would have, at best, would have tipped it to the Republicans. So um, I think just looking at even that history, it's a reminder. Sometimes we think the, the Democratic Party, you know, the best arguments for 
for uh, sticking with the currently constituted Democratic Party or Hillary Clinton is, well, we need to beat the Republicans. That's the most important thing for a Democrat to consider. But if you think about how the Democratic Party has operated, you know, in the case of Bernie, you know, supporting these kind of um, spoiler candidates against him, it's a reminder that the Democratic Party isn't always most interested in beating Republicans. Sometimes it's interested in policing its own boundaries and um, at maintaining its own control, um, party leaders maintaining their own control of the party as such. And I think they, there's no question that they view Bernie in, in the presidential race as an outsider. As much as he's worked with Democrats and built some relationships in Washington, I know Barney Frank and he worked, collaborated on a number of issues in Washington. And um, But Barney Frank came out very, the Massachusetts uh, Democrat, yeah, yeah. came out very strongly against Bernie very early in the race, um, dismissing his primary bid uh, uh, and, and saying that progressives should vote for Clinton. Um, and I think party elites, I think the label matters, but more importantly, I think they see him and what he represents, uh, the sort of populist tradition that he represents yes. as a threat that could overtake and remake the, the party as they know it. Absolutely. I think you're absolutely right on that. Uh, the, the populist thing, I mean, you're a historian. Populism is a long suppressed, but still powerful just under the surface tradition that has been there since at least Shays' Rebellion back in the uh, 1770s. It's been with us for a long time. And it does seem that the party establishment, like many established power structures, you know, doesn't want to give it up. And they, they like to keep control. And I've heard, I can't tell you how often I've heard this, th th people have said, and this is pretty much word for word quote, when the parties give us Clinton and Bush, what do they expect? <laughs> Maybe the Republican Party is getting it now because, I mean, Bush, I, by the time people hear this, he, my guess is he won't even be in the race. Uh, so maybe the Republican Party is getting it, but not the Democratic Party, not, not yet anyway. Are, are they getting that there's, you know, something that people aren't connecting so much with parties anymore? They're connecting more with the individuals and what he or she represents. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the remarkable thing, thing about Bernie. I mean, there's no question that is, is, is the last part of what you said about what, what he represents. I think if you compare, for instance, the 2008 campaign and this campaign, um, the 2008 primary was very compelling. You know, it featured enormously high turnout in, uh, in places like Iowa and New Hampshire. You had the kind of the first, um, you know, uh, really strong female candidate for president and the first, uh, well, I won't say first because Jesse Jackson, you know, I think gets yeah, forgotten okay. unfairly in the yep. Democratic Party. Yep. But Barack Obama was, uh, you know, was, cert was certainly contending to be the first African-American president. Um, and, uh, and the argument between Clinton and Obama, although, you know, they got into some details about health care, this and that, it was really about personality, I think, hmm. and which kind of candidate's style, which kind of candidate's symbolism um, you were drawn to as a voter. Uh, Hillary, you know, they, and they had, you know, they had sharply contrasting styles. But substantively, in terms of what they would actually do, what their program was to affect the lives of ordinary people, um, they were very similar, much more similar than different. They were both, um, uh, they both ran as kind of, um, um, programmatically anyway, as, uh, as, as new Democrat um, I don't want to say centrist. That's that's not totally fair, but um, they certainly didn't run on a populist uh, right. platform at all, or a platform that harkened back to the New Deal or um, the Great Society. And I think with Bernie, the amazing thing is that people have been drawn to him 
I mean, sure, personality obviously has something to do with it. He's, you know, oddly likable in his kind of cantankerous, uh, cantankerous way, and people see him an authenticity in him that I yes, think yes. Um, a lot of other politicians lack. Yes. But at the same time, he's not an obvious candidate to sort of represent a youth insurgency or a populist insurgency. You know, really? he's a seventy. 70-something, I think 74, 70-something, you know, Jewish socialist. And, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, from an American historical perspective, I think that does not not augur well necessarily for connecting with all sorts of voters in places like Iowa, for instance. Um, uh, You know, Iowa doesn't have a long tradition of electing Jewish socialists. (laughs) And uh, and so it's clear, I think, that the people are supporting him because of his ideas. Um, because of his support of things like single-payer health care and his support of things like um, free tuition at public universities and a living wage and stronger labor laws and, um, you know, breaking up um, you know, Wall Street's dominion over yeah, the economy. Really? Um, and that's really striking. And, and I, I wonder about, I mean, I've heard it said in the past, when people hear words socialist, they stop thinking. And as you said, you know, the real socialists are like, Bernie's no real socialist at all. You know, he's he's right. But, but, you know, I'm wondering, you know, clearly, I mean, Claire McCaskill, uh, you talk about party insider. She is absolutely it. She actually even referred to the hammer and sickle to refer to Bernie and Sanders campaign. And, you know. My sense is, and your historical perspective is what I'm looking for here, that, you know, okay, that was the 50s, the communist scare. The Cold War is over, has been over for a very long time. Young people, I don't think, have, I mean, they have no uh, negative association with the term socialist, I don't think. Does, and yet, the polls that I've looked at, national polls, show that Bernie is stronger against the Republicans than Hillary Clinton. How how much of an issue do you think this word socialist is, democratic socialist? I mean, the real democratic socialism like they have in Scandinavia, he's pointed out, I think people would like quite a bit. But w- what's your perspective on the words democratic socialist? Well, I think it's it's really interesting. It's been a fascinating uh, dimension to this campaign. Um, and I think uh, I think I would say a couple things. First, on in terms of the 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 head-to-head polls, I, I would be a little bit cautious about. I know Bernie's used them, and he's sort of made that argument pretty straight up when people say, well, you know, Hillary Clinton, um, you know, will, will, you know, is a, is a much better candidate to run against the Republicans. You know, you'll, you'll get clobbered. And he says, well, if you look at the polls, I'm, I'm clobbering Trump. I'm clobbering Cruz. I'm ahead of Rubio uh, more than Clinton is. I think it's fair to say that the Clinton rebuttal to that is, well, we don't, we haven't seen them really attack Bernie. Hillary has been attacked for decades, and we, everyone kind of knows where they stand on Hillary. Wait till the Republicans break out. Um, you know, if you thought Claire McCaskill was bad, wait till they start running, you know, ads about Bernie's honeymoon in, in the Soviet Union and all sorts of things like that. Um, and that, you know, I think there's, it's truth that, that we don't know. But I think that proposition is, is untested rather than, um, is rather than proven because I think we've come a long way. I agree with your, what you said in the first part of the question. We've come a long way from the Cold War. The voters under 40 who are backing Bernie, um, you know, by a margin of, you know, 70 in Iowa, it was something like, you know, it was over 70% of voters under 40 backed Bernie. Um, and, you know, they were 13 years old when the Berlin Wall came down. So if they have a memory of, um, you know, 12 or 13 years, if they have a memory of the Cold War, it's a, just a youthful childhood memory at best, and many have no memory at all. Um, and so I think socialist absolutely means something very different to that generation. Uh, if you looked at a poll, uh, there was a poll in Iowa 
something like uh, 43% of um, yes. caucus goers identified as socialists. Not only were they not afraid of it, they identified. And there have been other polls that show people, um, uh, people, you know, Democrats prefer, registered Democrats prefer social, the word socialist to capitalist. So I think, uh, you know, I think with older voters, I think there's no question that it could be a scare word that might have some effect. Um, and yeah. how much? I don't know. With younger voters, though, um, and uh, I think uh, it, it's very, it, see, it has seemed proven to be a, a totally useless weapon against Bernie. Yeah, and it does seem that uh, people do, I think, care less about party. And my sense is that every election, it's either pretty much a, yeah, we want more of the same or we really want change. My sense is right. this is this is a year of the latter. I mean, look at who's dominating the Republican Party. The establishment candidates seem to be going down, although you never know. But uh, the, the people want something really different. And my sense is one of Bernie's strengths is this whole populist thing. I mean, there's a po- right-wing populism and a left-wing populism. The Tea Party, it seems to me, grew up out of a sense. I mean, it was taken over. We know that by big money, uh, which manipulated it. But 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 where it came from is people feel like, you know what? This is not my government. This is supposed to be our government. This is not our government. And, you know, taking it back from the elites, the power structure, I think that has wider appeal than, oh, you know, a cautious centrist, which, you know, the Democratic elite has felt like, uh, you know, we have to be cautious centrists uh, to to be able to win. Uh, who knows, but there's, there does seem to be a tremendous amount of energy out there. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. We're on uh, Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is Matt Karp, Assistant Professor of History at Princeton University and Contributing Editor at Jacobin Magazine. We're talking about the war on Bernie Sanders from the Democratic Party lead. And oftentimes in history, a lot of people see conspiracies where there usually aren't any. It, it, you know, it, it's kind of fun to see these conspiracies that are, you know, organizing it all. There's, you know, it, it happens quite often. In this case, there's a clear, is there a clear actual conspiracy to destroy Bernie Sanders, a simple insider versus outsider? Or do you think it's less centrally organized and more, you know, organic or complex? Or, uh, you know, is there an actual conspiracy? I think, well, you know, I think in general, yeah, I, th- I think conspiracy is an overrated force in history, I would say, as a historian. I remember reviewing a book about a shadowy organization called the Knights of the Golden Circle uh, that existed before the Civil War um, in the in the South that, you know, had put all sorts of, had, had various sort of propaganda um, uh, uh, sort of broadsides and, and pamphlets about seizing a slaveholding empire in Mexico. And, um, and the book sort of was contending that this shadowy organization had, was responsible for secession. And I remember in my review for the South seceding after Lincoln's election, you know, that this was a little bit silly because, uh, like most political movements in history, these things happened out in the open. And they were very candid about, the secessionists were very candid about what they were doing and what they stood for and how important slavery and slave empire was to their um, to their worldview and their actions. And I think, um, not to, certainly not to compare Hillary Clinton and her supporters to slaveholders, but I think this is another, uh, just another example where, I don't want to say that there's a conspiracy against Hillary against Bernie Sanders. 
there's nothing conspiratorial about it. There's, um, there, it's, it's all right out in the open about how these party leaders feel. I mean, you quoted the head of the new, the former, uh, New Hampshire, uh, Democratic leader who compared Bernie Sanders to, uh, dogs who couldn't control their bladders, um, you know, or toddlers, uh, you know, who are soiling their own rugs. I mean, these people have been very direct about their opposition to what Bernie stands for, their opposition to Bernie's populism, um, and, and their fear about what, um, what, what Bernie could do. Now, I think, I guess I would say in, again, just to be to be fair, I think some of the party leaders who are supporting Hillary um, are doing so grudgingly rather than enthusiastically because they feel like they have to get on board because the momentum is too strong and they feel like they uh, they they don't really have a choice and that supporting Bernie would um, you know would 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 be too dangerous or maybe they're too cautious. They feel that uh, you know um, that this candidate um, whose politics are to the left of what we've seen in recent years is an unacceptable risk. But I think, you know, if you look at the striking thing is if you look at Bernie's platform, you know, how well it polls, you know, to return to this electability question, because a lot of Democrats feel like, you know, we can't support Bernie because he won't, uh, he can't win in a general election. You know, I was looking at a poll yesterday, 59% of people support his, of Americans, not Democrats, of Americans support Hmm. his college proposal, free tuition on public universities. 55% support single-payer health care, only 28 in strong opposition, and 73% support raising taxes on the wealthy. I mean, these are staggering numbers. These are there's a reason. You know, you keep you 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 keep saying the word populism. There's a reason why Bernie's a populist because what he supports is popular. <laughs> and I think for the Democratic Party, it might be time to to support what's popular uh, rather than as as Clinton has done. Um, you know, inveigh and 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 scream against how that will never ever happen. Uh, uh, it won't happen if you don't fight for it. <laughs> That's true. And I. I... You know, of course, know a few legislators, and I have to believe that they're sort of in a, a tough position. There's trying to be popular with the people or with the party establishment. I mean, you know, most uh, uh, members of Congress and, and U.S. senators have endorsed uh, uh, Hillary Clinton. My guess is because they feel like, oh, we kind of need to go along with the party leadership, which I don't think is particularly good choice. But, uh, you know, the people, I think, the average voter cares more about specific issues and kind of they figure we'll forget about that after time. Uh, and, and I think we will. Um, presidential campaigns have, have always been about money. You know, it's, it's a huge, huge factor. There were limits for a brief time, the McCain-Feingold era. But with Citizens United and a later decision, the power of big money has taken off into the stratosphere. What can you tell us about how the party establishment has taken advantage of this regarding two rather amazing super PACs in an attempt to lock in the nomination? Well, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, Hillary, Hillary's campaign began with, with fundraising, which is how all campaigns, I think, have to begin in some ways. I mean, I think that was probably these days, and especially in a post-Citizens United era. I know um, from what I've read about Sanders' campaign, too, um, he, you know, the, the biggest consideration when he was debating whether to run was would I be able to raise enough money to stay viable against in, a, in an era where you need tens and hundreds of million dollars, uh, millions of dollars to, to even compete. Um, Hillary, um, the, the Ready for Hillary movement began um, in 2013, you know, years, you know, over two years ago. Uh, almost three years ago, 
And uh, uh, the first, it was initially, it was sort of a build as a grassroots movement um, to sort of draft Hillary for president and without her direct involvement. And they did, uh, you know, they, they raised a lot of money and had a bus going around uh, the country with, you know, a picture of Hillary on her Blackberry, that kind of famous, cool Secretary of State picture. And, you know, again, I don't want to make the, in my article and in my presentation, I don't want to make it seem like Hillary Clinton has no appeal uh, to Democrats because, you know, she has a lot of appeal. And they did raise a lot of money from sort of from the grassroots roots, although striking contrast to Bernie Sanders' support, over half of the money that was raised for Hillary in this ground roots, grassroots super PAC came from donations over $2,500. So these might not have been, there were some small donors, surely, but the bulk of the money came from, if not massive donors, uh, from wealthy Americans, I think. I don't think most Americans are able to just cut a check for 2500 bucks for a candidate uh, of their choice three years before an election. Not, not too many. Yeah, not too many. Um, I, and the, it's, the numbers are very different from Bernie's support. But the real money came in. Um, so that, that, that super PAC raised about, uh, I think it was a, a little over $15 million before Hillary made her announcement, maybe $16 million total. And then after she announced, the wheels had already been in motion to set up a big super PAC, which could collect the real big money, the $500,000, $1 million, $2 million um, donations. And that PAC, super PAC has now raised um, over... Uh, over $50 million in support of Hillary, almost entirely from um, donors who are giving at least 500000 or more. And, um, you know, that's her war chest. She hasn't actually, I should say, she hasn't even touched it yet. Um, mm. She's saving it for the general election, supposedly. Mm. So she's only um, using her regular donation money so far. Um, uh, you know, she's she's uh, hoarding the super PAC money. Bernie, of course, doesn't have anything like that. He's having to um, raise money, all his money that he gets from um, small donors. And the average contribution is $27, last time I checked, which is pretty right. amazing. And, and, uh, one, one quick, quick thing yeah, yeah. that I want to say, I want to say, sometimes the average donations can be misleading. Oh, yes. Because, yeah. you know, you get, you know, you get 10 donations for $20 and one for, or you get 200 donations for $20 and one for a million. And, you know, okay, or you, whatever, the mean can make it seem smaller than it really is. So the, the best measure is to look at what percentage of the money is coming from donors that are big versus small. And Bernie is at 70% small donations, uh, whereas Hillary's, Hillary's numbers of small donations is below, um, I think she's down in the, in the, in the teens or yeah. the 20s in yeah. terms of small donation money percentage-wise. Yeah, I believe it's, it's the teens. I'm, I'm not certain on that. And yeah. I do want to say, you know, Hillary, you know, she's not evil. Uh, I think she can be uh, duplicitous sometimes, but if it comes down to, uh, if, if she happens to get the nomination to me, uh, she's better than any Republican. I just, you know, I, I wanted to get that out of the way. You know, she still is, you know, Supreme Court nominees. To me, that says it all. You, you, know, you got to have somebody who's going to protect our freedoms. And this year, uh, as with every year, they're, they're a long series of primaries. They just barely started, believe it or not, with various states where citizens cast their ballots for whom they prefer to be their nominee. But this year, there's something you call the invisible primary. I guess that talks about what you were just talking about with the super PACs as well. Tell us about this invisible primary. Well, I mean, that's... That's the way that... That's the word that I think a couple of political scientists have coined um, to describe the sort of backstage proceedings within the party that determine where sort of different forces within the party, different factions, different groups within the party elite um, sort of test their strength and determine uh, which candidates to support. And sometimes, you know, again, this is not 
this is not to be conspiratorial. Um, you know, there are most times in, in political parties in modern history, um, the party elite has been very divided among itself. I mean, if you look at the Republican Party elite now, um, certainly there's a wide opposition to somebody like Donald Trump or Ted Cruz, but yeah. there's uh, many divisions within the elite about which candidate to support. You know, Jeb Bush got a lot of money in the early going, but Marco Rubio has been, you know, more successful. And then, but there are some factions that are still supporting um, somebody like Chris Christie or John Kasich or... Yeah. Um, you know, and some that some I think even that support Cruz. So it's it's not like you know every, the par- invisible primary always ends up in a in a in a with a clear victor. Mm-hmm. But I think in this case, the Hillary versus Bernie case, it's it was um, it, it's been an overwhelming route in terms of um, the, the 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 way that the party uh, not uh, party officials have lined up behind behind Clinton. Yeah, and the, it, it's true. The I think the Republican establishment, it's kind of fun to watch, uh, is tearing its hair out trying to figure out who to support because they don't like Cruz and Trump, uh, but they haven't picked one yet. Whereas in the, in the Democratic Party, as you say, it's super clear. There's no question about it. Which 38 of 46 senators have endorsed Hillary, just to give you some numbers, 148 uh, of 188 House representatives. I mean, these are overwhelming. It's amazing. It's not even like half the party endorsed her and the other half and the other half isn't the, the people who haven't endorsed by the way aren't supporting bernie they're just they're just sitting on the sidelines yeah um, like, and 12 of 18 governors i mean it'd be one thing if hillary had wide support that maybe amounted to 40 percent of the party and the rest just sort of said well let's see wait for the primary but so many of these people have jumped on board um even before the voting began these, these endorsements were all in before the iowa caucus before a single voter cast a ballot Hmm. The elected officials have thrown, you know, three quarters in some cases of the party's strength behind behind Clinton. Yeah, that's that's so fascinating. And I, and I wonder, I mean, there's this uh, Clinton machine, which is very substantial. I mean, Cl- Hillary Clinton, to my amazement, has said, well, Bernie's doing well in New Hampshire because it's a neighboring state. I, <laughs> nobody knew Bernie Sanders until very recently. Everybody. Everybody knew Hillary Clinton. Absolutely 100% name recognition. I think if you were to go back last spring, Bernie Sanders' name recognition in New Hampshire, probably about 2%, really. It's, <laughs> it's, it's just not there. That is a, a inconsistent, shall we say, argument. It's absolutely not true. And I wonder about, you know, the Clinton machine. You know, it's not just presidential politics being about money. It's congressional. Can't, I mean, they always got to be raising money all the time. I wonder... If there are some agreements, uh, winks and nods about, you know, if you support the Clinton machine, the Clinton machine will support you. And Bernie Sanders never makes any kind of quid pro quos like that, I wouldn't think. I I don't know how much of a factor that is. I don't know if, with your knowledge of how these things uh, work. Well, I mean, one thing I guess I'll say here is, I guess I, I'm in favor of democracy in all in all areas, right? Yeah, I, I kind of like it's it. Important to yeah. point out where <laughs> exactly it's like it's. A, I'm a big fan of your show title, um, and I think that is above all. If I had to pick one word for what Bernie Sanders stands for, I think it is democracy, and I think democracy within the Democratic Party is really important. So all the and I think I've made that clear. Yeah. But I also think. I guess I would say, and I and I and I very much enjoyed your George Washington quote to begin the program about the ways that parties can ossify and support, um, you know, act as instruments for career advancement rather than you know for um, to serve the people. But I also think there there are pretty good historical arguments for the utility of parties and the importance of things like 
party solidarity and party support in the face of a party like the Republicans who, whatever their disagreements in the primary race, act with incredible discipline, oh, yes. incredible um, unity um, when they come to Congress. And, you know, for all of their sort of, you know, infighting about, you know, how far to how far to push the party to the right and so on, when it comes to battling with Democrats, they're incredibly unified and incredibly, um, you know, they're a parliamentary party. And I think, um, and I think those kinds of... Um, in some ways, the sort of um, the arrangements to win over party officials to your side, the sort of the coaxing and wheedling that happens within a party, mm. um, some of that is necessary, I think, to prov- I mean, you again, you, you you're somebody who's who's lived this, so I feel a little bit um, silly um, pontificating sort of from the outside <laughs> no, as, a, as, no. a, as an academic. But you know, to some extent, I think some of those deals and some of those kinds of um, some of that politicking within a party is important to preserve um, the party's strength as a fighting force um, in, in in politics. Um, so I don't want to say, you know, I don't want right. to make it about sort of impure Clintons and pure Bernie. Right. Um, it's just about who those deals serve. Do those deals, or do those deals and those politicking and those kinds of arrangements, are they meant, are they part of a struggle to achieve a political end that's a, that helps the people? Or are they... Or are they simply about preserving some kind of structure and hierarchy within the party? That's the question. And, and you know, I, I've run for office and, and not won, and it is better to win, I assure you. It's much better to win <laughs> and to have your agenda actually into gear. And an old uh, friend of mine here in New Hampshire said, uh, never make the good be the enemy of the perfect. And that is true. You know, we want to win. You know, you can't demand perfection all the time, yet it's important to win. It really is. But the question is, how much is compromised? And what, and what you know, is winning everything? Some, some people, you know, the Democratic Party establishment, I believe, uh, seems to believe very strong that you have to be centrist. You can't anger anybody. You can't take any risks. You have to go down the middle of the road. And I, I love what the old populist uh, Jim Hightower said about Texas. In Texas, there's only two things in the middle of the road. Uh, yellow stripes and dead armadillos. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. Yeah, and and Paul Wellstone. I mean, you talk about the identity of the Democratic Party. Uh, right. pa- Paul Wellstone, a, a great example. He was about to be easily reelected in 2004 over a well-funded right-winger uh, when the plane he was in crashed very, very mysteriously, and he was killed. He, he always said that he was from the Democratic wing of the Democratic Party. He was right. a, a rising national leader at the time. Is this a lot of what this campaign is about? What is the identity of the party? I mean, Howard Dean stole that line, claimed it as his own. But it doesn't matter, really. But the Democratic wing of the Democratic Party and the identity of the Democratic Party. Is that a lot of... I, th- I think that's dead on. I think that's absolutely dead on. And I think, and I do think... And here's where, you know, the rubber does hit the road or the truck hits the armadillo or whatever, <laughs> whatever metaphor you want to use. I think there are some forces within. I'm, I'm not totally nihilistic or, or, or um, uh, pessimistic even about um, the entirety of the Democratic Party and its ability to, to, to be shaped into a, a, a fighting populist force again. I think there's a long way to go and there are a lot of major obstacles and we have to take all of them seriously. But I think there are forces, even in Congress, even some of these elected officials, people like Elizabeth Warren, obviously, who I think, whose non-endorsement of Hillary, um, you know, I'm personally almost taking as a as a tacit yeah. sign of support for Sanders. Yeah. Um, 
I think there are um, there there is a possibility of reclaiming um, that kind of tradition, and I think that's absolutely what Bernie stands for. And the fact that he's getting um, so many voters. Um, you know, on board with this, even even though he himself is not necessarily the most superficially, um, you know, uh, he's not a candidate designed by Hollywood to win voters, <laughs> right? Yes. You know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't, central casting wouldn't, I mean, they would have sent somebody more like Barack Obama, yeah. um, you know, who had incredible political skills and, 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 and ability. I think there was actually a very, uh, there was an article in New Yorker recently that I saw that sort of was comparing Bernie to Obama and sort of was very puzzled. It was a younger writer, and she was like, why is my generation so into Bernie? He's so out of date. He's so out of fashion. And she just completely didn't get it. Um, you know, his his arguments, I guess, they're, they're, they're interesting, but where's his style? And... <laughs> And I mean, I think it's 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 a it's it's really inspiring to see people drawn not to the style but to the substance, and and to reclaim a vision of democracy that Paul Wellstone had that I think still lives uh, in this country and that I think can still prosper at some point. But there, there's a major opposition to that. Yeah, and it's it's from within the Democratic Party establishment for the most part because they just they don't want to take those chances. I, I think and uh, yeah. don't have any yeah. kind of some of it. I mean, I think. You know, it's interesting, if you think about how the Democratic Party has evolved, some of it is about electability and, you know, their caution in terms of wanting to beat Republicans and thinking that you have to tack to the center to beat Republicans. That was a major argument of the the Democratic Leadership Committee and so on in the 90s and the New Democrats. But some of it is just ideological, and I think it reflects the kind of the evolving class base of the Democratic Party, right? If you think about it historically, in the New Deal, you know, from the Roosevelt to the Johnson era, the kind of the most... um, the strongest and often certainly in the 30s the most militant base for democratic reform the things that pushed roosevelt to act yes. in the 30s in the, especially in the second roosevelt administration when the the good stuff really happened yeah. um, were you know were industrial workers and uh, and the sort of the power of labor and they were a major element of course in the in the great society coalition um, and the Democratic Party, as you know, as our economies evolved, the Democratic Party has become much more the heart of the Democratic Party base now. Is I would say much closer in the era of Obama to sort of suburban professionals and um, you know people who are very liberal on social issues and cultural issues, but um, are much more um, ambivalent uh, to some extent, at least historically, in the era of Clinton and Obama about economic issues. They've moved away from economic populism. And I think, um, so I don't think it's just simply that some devious politicians took over the party and moved it to the center, either to win elections or because they were kind of evil capitalists. I think it reflected kind of political economic transformations. Um, and, but, but because they've done that, I mean, these things are self, it's a, it's a, to use a scary socialist word, there's a sort of a dialectical component to this where each thing reinforces the other. When the party has moved to the center, a lot of those, um, blue collar workers, um, you know, even though their population has shrank, a lot of lower income people generally have been become disaffected, and yes. voting rates in that population has plummeted. Absolutely, and people who people don't see that either party really represents them exactly. at the sort in the sort of bottom half of society. So I think that's one thing that a populist a, a, a populist Democratic Party could potentially do is appeal to those kinds of voters who've been left out in the past thirty years. Yeah, and you would think uh, it would be fairly easy to see there were those Reagan Democrats, the people who did feel left out, the blue collar people who felt like right. the party wasn't talking to them. You know, and and I think. Bernie resonates well because people can get his authenticity, especially that's one great thing about New Hampshire is we get to look the candidates in the eye and see, is this person for real or not? And people absolutely get his authenticity. But there's also his his consistent uh, denunciation of government 
of, by, and for the billionaire class. I mean, that term class is something we haven't really heard much of in Europe, of course. Oh, it's so refreshing. In, in Europe, class politics is ever-present, but not in the U.S. What about class politics within the Democratic Party? I mean, going way back to Eugene Debs, you know, uh, but has there been successful use of this class politics? I mean, certainly FDR, as you know, was was called a traitor to his class because he was right. wealthy. What, what about this? They hate me and I welcome their hatred, right? Yes, I love that. I love that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Bernie basically gave an echo of that. I mean, you saw the difference in the in the debate, right? It was a very, it was sort of very clarifying. When um, I, I don't, I don't remember which moderator asked the candidates about, you know, how should Wall Street think about you, and or how should you know how should and Hillary said, I think everybody should like me, you know, I mean, uh, you know, <laughs> which 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 is in some level it was a good answer. It was sort of charming. I have to give her credit. But then she said, I want to be president for the, um, I think the the struggling, the striving, and the successful. I want to be everybody's president. She explicitly renounced any kind of um, the 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 possibility of that 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 there exists or there could be any kind of um, class struggle or any kind of opposition between different sec- sections of the population. Whereas um, you know Bernie gave a very FDR answer. He said, "If I were on Wall Street, you know, you know, I wouldn't vote for Bernie Sanders." Um, and I think he's. I think it's in some ways it's that message. It's the message that look, there is a class war happening. Um, it's not happening from below. It's not happening from on the right. part of the proletariat. It's right. happening from above, and that's um, that's what why the gains in wealth and income over the past thirty years have all, the forty years even have all have all flowed in one direction. Interesting. And I want to ask you know just a little bit of very recent history. That whole DataGate. Thing a few months ago, wherein it was yeah. alleged that the Bernie campaign people stole Hillary's data. The whole story, to me, was very suspect. I know the Bernie campaign tried to tell the DNC about it. It seems like they kind of left it out there as bait. How did this instant, uh, the incident demonstrate that the party views Sanders as an outside threat to the party's existence rather than a legitimate contender? Those are your words there. Well, I think I think you know the DataGate thing was one example. It's again, I wasn't you know I'm, I the, some of those things are still uh, obscure exactly yes. what who saw what and what happened. But I think it's clear that by um, from my perspective, by um, you know the Sanders campaign had stumbled on some data that it wasn't supposed to see, and um, you know it had warned the camp it had warned the DNC right. that you know these leaks were possible had been, had been happening yeah. um, that you know that their server that their uh, the 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 um, service that provided the data lists had, you know, had been, you know, was was not working well, and yet so, suddenly when they got through, you know, maybe somebody peeked around a little bit. It's not really clear, yeah. um, but that they sort of peremptorily, um, you know, took access to the data away for 24 hours and, you know, kind of made, you know, Sanders suspend his campaign almost, uh, in essence. But to be honest, that's, I think that's still ambiguous and we don't know enough. I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't rest too heavily on that. It's just another thing that's out there. I think the debate structure, though, is a very clear case about how the, the party had determined on a coronation, had, you know, scheduled only a handful of debates, far fewer than in 2008, um, at the beginning of the race, assuming that Hillary was going to be in cruise control the whole time. And, you know, two of them were scheduled, I think, on a Saturday night before, on like, you know, a couple of days before Christmas, oh. and another one was a Sunday night. I mean, these were times when nobody was watching. Um, they really tried to bury. Now, of course, they want more debates because you know Hillary's a pretty good debater, and you know they want to. They're they're a little bit afraid, so they're they're adding debates. But that's um, I think that's uh, that strategy has backfired certainly. But I think that was clear that uh, the committee was trying to sort of diminish the amount of exposure someone like Bernie could get. 
One final thing. If certainly if Bernie is the nominee, that will say a lot about the future identity of the Democratic Party. If Bernie is not the Democratic nominee and it's either Hillary or if something should happen to her legally and maybe they go with Biden at the last minute, uh, which could happen. Do, do you think the Sanders campaign has had I mean, you crystal ball uh, a a lasting impact on the identity of the Democratic Party? I think so. These voters aren't going anywhere. You know, they're not, um, you know, they're in there, they're, in, you know, uh, the voters under 40 who went 70, 70, 30 for Hillary within the Democratic Party, within the Iowa caucus. They're not, um, you mean for you Bernie? Know, they, they, sorry, they went for Sanders. Yeah, yeah. 70% who went for Sanders. They're not, they're here to stay. And they're a new coalition that, um, I think even Peggy Noonan, um, you know, right wing columnist, Reagan speechwriter, who, um, you know, disagree with pretty much everything she says, but she's a keen mm. analyst, wrote a column about, the future of the Democratic Party and these young people. And um, I think this populist tradition is something that, you know, a President Clinton, for instance, would have to reckon with in a big way. And moreover, even beyond the immediate short term of 2016, 2017, yeah. that, um, you know, how the Democratic Party is going to is going to present itself and present itself to its voters and present itself nationally and what it's going to stand for are, are things that are very much at stake and could be reshaped by this impulse, populist impulse. Very exciting, I think. This is one heck of an election. Our guest today has been Matt Karp, assistant professor of history at Princeton University. Uh, his first book, This Vast Southern Empire, Slaveholders at the Helm of U.S. Foreign Policy, sounds like very interesting reading, is coming out uh, from Harvard University Press next fall. And, of course, he's with Jacobin Magazine. That's J-A-C-O-B-I-N Magazine, which is, of course, online. Thank you very much for being with us. This is a lot of fun. Thanks so much, Bert. I had a great time. All right. And maybe we need to fight the power. Thanks for listening. Time is through the waste.